For our latest Birmingham Comedy Festival podcast, we talked to Robert Lloyd from cult brum band The Nightingales about comedians Stuart Lee and Ted Chippington. We hear about the long-awaited documentary film King Rocker and find out more about punk band The Clash's legendary 1977 White Riot tour. Comedian Stuart Lee is a big fan of Birmingham post-punk band The Nightingales. So much of a fan, in fact, he's made a documentary about them, entitled King Rocker. Written by Stuart and directed by Michael Cumming, whose credits include Brass Eye and Toast of London, the film traces the band's career from their incarnations to prefects in late 70s Brum to the present day. Here's a taster. This was an exit from what was Birmingham New Street Station. It's now called Grand Central Station. And I used to walk out of here once a week in 1972 with my gran, who would be going to hand in her Spot the Ball coupon from the Birmingham Evening Mail. On this site was Manzoni Gardens, named after Sir Herbert Manzoni, who presided over the sort of brutalist restructuring of Birmingham, the demolition of Victorian Birmingham. And in this square was a massive statue by the pop artist Nicholas Munro of the legendary cinema ape King Kong. It was part of a scheme in 1972 whereby cities were given the opportunity to own a piece of public art. They had it for six months and they could buy it. Birmingham rejected the statue. Lord Nelson's column should be there. So we stand up for. What does that represent? Nothing. You think it's a waste of money then? I certainly do, yes. I hope hope Birmingham don't buy it. Birmingham seems to have a great history of rejecting its culture. And when I started thinking about a way of telling the story of the Nightingales and Rob Lloyd and the prefects, this seemed like the entry point to me. And in tonight's programme, particular favourites of mine, and for those of you who remember the prefects with affection, the Nightingales. We live in a culture where mediocrity is rewarded and originality and integrity are punished. And John Peel said of the Nightingales that years after all the other groups of their era had been revealed as charlatans and chancers, someone would finally recognise that they were one of the greatest bands. Whether that will happen or not, I don't know. But what I do want to understand is how Rob Lloyd kept that group going for over four decades in the face of commercial and critical indifference. I always used to think that when when I pegged it, all of a sudden people would buy the records and pretend they liked us all along. But I begin to worry that what if I peg it and they still don't buy the records? <laughs> Ah, 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 ah. 
Talking Rocker receives its premiere at Sheffield Dogfest later in October with a cinema release and freeview screening to follow. We tracked down the Nightingale's frontman, Robert Lloyd, to find out more and began by asking him about when he first met Stuart Lee. As far as I can recall, um, and I have no idea how he would have got my telephone number, but I started putting out Nightingale's records on my own label in the early 2000s and Stuart rang me up at home um, and said, is there any chance that you'll be releasing the Ted Chivington album? Because, well, I knew Stuart was a big Ted fan, and there were no plans to do that. And I spoke to Ted about it, and he said that he he wasn't really interested in a reissue, but he wouldn't mind doing a big sort of flashy box set of... um, you know, hours worth of him telling the same joke kind of thing. And Stuart organised a gig at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London with, with Bridget Christie and Phil Jupitus and Simon Munnery and, you know, another bunch of people to raise the money to allow us to do this ridiculous Ted Chibbington box set. And that's when I, at that gig, is the first time I can remember actually meeting Stuart. And we just sort of got on from there. What did you think when he came to you and proposed doing a documentary about the band? I was surprised because it was something that had been knocking about as an idea. To be honest, I mean, Stuart tells one story about this, which is not the way I remember it exactly. But anyway, many years ago, Phil Jupiter had said to me, we should do a documentary about the Nightingales. And it never came to anything, obviously. But during the course of that, I'd got this idea, yeah, we should do it, and it should be a bit of a comedy about the world's sort of least known band, you know. And I told this to Stuart, and Stuart said to me, it's a bad idea, you shouldn't turn yourselves into a joke because you're too good. And anyway, nothing ever happened with Phil and his his TV contacts, so it I forgot about the idea, and then one day Stuart sent me an email saying, um, I've met a director who's also a Nightingale's fan, and I know a film producer, so would you be interested? And it, despite the fact that years before what I've just told you had happened, when Stuart contacted me, it was completely out of the blue, really. A couple of years ago, you uh, went on tour with Stuart, or rather Stuart went on tour with you. How are those shows? I'm not sure that it works that great, to be honest. We did it largely. Stuart owed us a bit of... Or he felt he didn't really owe us a favour, but he felt he did. Uh, It's a bit of a long story, but he felt he owed us a favour. And so he offered to to do some gigs with us, basically with the view. um, He's obviously much, much more popular than the Nightingales are. And the idea was that we would be able to charge a bigger fee and the band would make some money because Stuart did it for nothing. And I thought, yeah, great idea. Um, We'd done one or two shows before with him doing a 15-minute sort of opening set before we went on, like the old Ted Chivington slot, really. When we did the tour, I mean, there were a couple of gigs where it was a real success and worked well, I think, like where we're a success anyway. You know, um, sort of Birmingham, London, Manchester or wherever. But there were a few places like, I don't know, Cambridge and Portsmouth are a couple that spring to mind. 
where there were massive turnouts, but it was basically people who'd come to see Stuart in a club environment. And so it didn't really work that well for the Nightingales, you know what I mean? Because um, people would either bugger off or weren't that particularly interested. So it was um, it was a very generous and lovely uh, idea of Stuart's, but it wasn't one that we both agreed it didn't really work that in the way we wanted it to. But but nonetheless, we did make a few quid out of it, so that so that helped. You mentioned Ted Chippington there, who's one of the lost greats from that period in the early eighties as well. Did you play with him much back in the eighties? Yeah, yeah, that's why Stuart contacted me. I um, Ted played with us pretty pretty much regular through the kind of um, from eighty two to eighty six, I suppose. And I had my own little record label where I put out um, an EP and an album of Ted's. Then with Ted and Fuzzbox, we did a, a record that Warner Brothers released that was almost a hit. And that was a song that Ted, that Ted had written. Yeah, for a while, for a couple of years, me and Ted shared a flat. And weirdly enough, I spoke to him only on Tuesday night for the first time for a long time. And he's in, uh, he's in fine fettle. Excellent. Do you know if he's got any more plans to go back on stage? None at all, I don't think. We'd asked him to do, because he toured with the Nightingales as recently as, say, four years ago. And we, we kind of do a, a, a tour or two each year, until this year, of course. And we asked him to do one, and he, he just really wasn't into doing it. Whether that whether it'll do any in the future, I don't know for certain, but I doubt it very much. I think he sort of lost heart in it a bit. It was quite funny actually because when Stuart suggested that he do some gigs with us, he was slightly worried about putting Ted's nose out of joint, you know, like sort of nicking his spot kind of thing. But by that time, Ted wasn't that bothered about it, so um, so, so no one was upset, you know. So when the Nightingale story, I guess, begins with the prefects in 76, 77, I've often seen you referred to as Birmingham's first punk band. Is that is that right? Were you the first punk band well, in I Birmingham? Think, I, I, th I think it is right, yes, because even though there were a couple of other bands at the same time, there was a band called the Suburban Studs, for example, but they were, um, like a lot of other bands around the country, they were sort of a pub rock band, really, that kind of cut their hair and played their songs a bit faster and, you know, to sort of kind of, uh, you know, gatecrash a new, a new scene and use it in their favour. Um, so I never thought of them as like an authentic thing. And the only other band I can think of around that time was a band called Model Mania and that wasn't really punk. They were kind of a bunch of Bowie fans, really, I suppose. I mean, there were, maybe there are people out there that would dispute it, and frankly, I don't care. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but um, I, I think it's I think it's, it's actually one of the true things that has been said about us, yeah. Well, you were on the legendary White Riot tour for, for a few of those dates. How was that experience? It was very good for me because I thought that I I had this misguided idea in my head as a as a young teenager 
well, all teenagers are young, obviously. Um, but I got to, I got this idea in my head that, that punk rock was a thing, you know, was like a movement that meant something. And being on the road with the Clash for a few days just showed me it was the same old cabbage over and over again, really. And it was just like, um, you know, a bunch of pop stars posing around as rebels kind of thing. So as Stuart puts it in the film, I was fast-tracked to um, disillusionment. And uh, that that's, that served me well, really. Instead of wasting time thinking I was part of a movement, I became... Um, became more individual um, earlier earlier than I would have done. So that's what I'm thankful for. Did you feel a kindred spirit with with any of the bands from that era? I've never felt kindred spirit with any band in any era, to be honest. But we did, the Buscocks, or mainly the Buscocks manager, Richard Boone, helped us out quite a bit. You know, we went on tour with them when they first signed to United Artists. And we played in Manchester quite a lot. And... Um, there was a band in Manchester called The Worst, who no one's ever heard of, but they were really good. And if you ask anyone in the Buscocks or The Fall or, you know, John Cooper Clark or whoever, they'll all tell you that they were probably the best of the bands around. So we played with those a lot and we played with The Fall quite a bit and The Buscocks helped us out quite a lot. Um, and we seemed to play Manchester more often than we played Birmingham. But I wouldn't say we felt affinity as such. You know, they were just... Um, Oh, even on the White Riot tour, we got on well with the Slits and we got on well with the Subway set. It was just the Clash I had a problem with. Um, yeah, I mean, actually, thinking about it back now, I suppose at that time when we were, um, you know, when I was 16, 17 or whatever, I suppose I did feel a bit of an affinity with the Subway set and, and the Slits. But that's because we were all on a coach with a bunch of pop stars and had a certain amount even though we knew we were lucky to be playing to audiences and, um, you know, being trouble, get, getting around the country, I think we all kind of knew that it was a bit of a charade. So there was that kind of affinity, if, that's, if that fits the definition. The band have had a, a, a lot of different lineups over the years and you've had a lot of different record labels rather famously. What, what has kept you going? What drives the Nightingales? Well, it's a mixture of things, I suppose. I mean, the fact that I actually have got stuff that I want to get out of my system is probably the prime thing. But also, I think that what we do in general, or what we have been doing, is of quality and worthwhile. And there is a bloody-mindedness as well, you know, like, we, until very recently when we started making records for tiny global productions, we were dropped by every record label after one album. No one had ever done two albums with the Nightingales. And we, we, it was basically a sort of, well, fuck you. I mean, we even did it ourselves, you know, put out a record ourselves a few years back when we were between labels. And, and I just see all these groups, you know, like every year until this year, they have like the Glastonbury Festival on the television. And you just watch all these really quite mediocre bands playing these kind of mediocre songs. These sort of girls in bikinis on their boyfriend's shoulders waving flags and everyone having their good time and stuff. And you just think, that's shit, you know. <laughs> it's, our, it's, our, it's our duty to um, to actually show that there's an alternative to the, to the, the vaccines or whoever it is, you know. 
And um, I see it as a bit of a, a sort of slightly political thing where it's just you, you've got to give people an alternative to, um, to, to the muck they're being fed. You've never been short of critical acclaim in this country, but great reviews, of course, don't pay the bills. Do the Nightingales have a bigger audience abroad? Um, no, we did. We did at, at one stage, I suppose, back, but that's back in the old days. We have an audience abroad in certain territories or certain, in, in fact, in certain cities rather than in, um, you know, like there are places in Germany that we can play where we struggle getting an audience and other places we play where, you know, we played in um, Berlin a few years ago and sold more merchandise type stuff at that um, at that show than we'd ever done anywhere at any time. And um, there's, a, there's a little town, well, I don't know if it's little or not, to be honest, but there's a town in Austria called Ebensee, and we always do that on our European tour, and it's always a massive success and a big party. And it's like, it's kind of as though we're there, um, you know, a special relationship. The band, I'm sure if they were having a 20th anniversary party or whatever, we'd be the band they'd want us to go and play there. But then you go to Vienna up in the same country, and maybe there's not so many people. It's a bit like that over here, to be honest. You know, I could name you a bunch of cities where I know that we're going to, you know, sell out or more or less sell out and go down a stormer and other places where it's really hit and miss. So, and then we go to America and again, there's some gigs are hits and some gigs are not. I mean, part of the idea from my point of view of agreeing to do the film, because it's a bloody weird thing having someone, um, you know, having yourself exposed on the cinema screen. Um, and uh, one of the reasons I agreed to do it was in the hope that it was going to raise out the profile of the band and, and we could actually get a larger audience. But our last record, the album Four Against Fate, sold more records than we've sold for many, many years. And yeah, the last couple of tours we've had a fair smattering of sold-out gigs and stuff. So I was hoping that, that, we, that we were turning a bit of a corner and that the movie would help that even more. But then in true Nightingale's fashion, you know, this virus thing put a kibosh on what was everyone was telling me was the big year. <laughs> you know, it's, it's your best album ever. It's your, you, it's your film. It's your this, that and the other. And, and like, you know, it all went to shite. <laughs> There's always next year. <laughs> well, yeah, but All the year I tell after you that. what, I, I tell you what, Dave. If I had a pound for every time I've heard that, there's always <laughs> next year, and that goes back, that goes back a decade, mate. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously there are people that are not in pop groups that have had it lots worse. So I don't mean to sound like a, a major whinger about it. But it was a bit of a kick in the knackers, and there's no, there's no getting away from it. I mean, Fliss, God bless her, our drummer, she books our shows, and she booked us a, um, well in advance, she booked us a full UK tour um, for, what, for April 2020, when the album came out. 
and that got postponed, so she rebooked it. Well, I would have been on tour now. She rebooked it for September, and then around about June time, we realised that that wasn't going to happen, so she's rebooked it for next April. Plans to go to America were, were scuppered. Our European tour, we've even we're even booking for next November. <laughs> and and the point being, anyway, uh, is that in my heart, I have no real optimism that the tour next April is going to happen. Or even if we could be going to Europe next November, I, I have no idea. And any and anyone really who thinks they do have an idea, I think they're they're guessing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but hey ho, isn't it? That's that's the way it is. The record sold really well. Unfortunately, I haven't done a gig for a long, old, long, long, old time. You know, over a year. Why do you think this last album, Four Against the Fate, has been so popular for you? Do you think it's something to do with that stability of lineup and the fact that you've been working with the same label for so long? I think both of those things are part of it, yes. John Henderson, who runs Tiny Global Productions, has been the most sort of supportive label boss we've had, really. You know, who really believes in the band. And then the lineup of the band, I, I just think. Um, I, I know I know what pop stars are like, and they all say that their their new record's the best one they've ever made, even if they know it's toilet in their hearts, and they're all you know fool themselves that they keep getting better and better. So I'm aware of, that that goes on, but I genuinely think that the band's got better and better. We're certainly very good live, and I think from um, releasing a record every year and from going on tour you know, once or twice a year, and people have come to see us. And it's slowly, and slowly is the word, but the interest has been increasing, you know. Having just whinged a bit about the uh, COVID experience, I suppose it, it's quite possible, because the album came out in May. Maybe people were buying records and books or whatever, into, you know, home entertainment, <laughs> rather than... Um, Rather than going down the pub or to to gigs and stuff, I don't I don't know, but certainly certainly the label have been great, and um, and I genuinely think that with Bliss, Jim and Andy, I've got um, the best lineup of the band I've had, and it's a really it's a really good record, but it's a bit of a fluke, you know. You talked about critical acclaim earlier, and the the albums we've been making over the last few years, they all get top reviews and you know, in print and on the internet and everything. And, but they haven't transformed into record sales particularly. But slowly it's been sort of picking up. I suppose the stubbornness and the chipping away with the support from Tiny Global and, yeah, audience... The more the more people that hear The Nightingales, I think the, 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 the bigger we'll get because we're good. Yeah. You know, it's... It, but I think the main... Thing. Like, if you'd have asked me the question the other way around and sort of said, why do you think you haven't been commercially successful? I would I would say it's because not enough people have heard us. Because um, I think that if the more people that hear us, the more people that will like it. It's as simple as that. We're, we're actually a good, worthwhile band. There are a lot of fly-by-night chances. And there are a lot of fly-by-night chances who get nominated for the fucking Mercury Prize. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> so. so uh, 
let alone at a, at a lesser level. Um, and and it's just luck as well, in it. You know, there are, there are unpredictable aspects that you just don't know. So ho- hopefully, we'll continue to sell more and more. Four Against Fate is a hugely varied album, but for newbies, people who don't know the band, do you think there's one track that perhaps sums up what the Nightingales do the best? No, no, there's not one track that I think represents the Nightingales, and I'll tell you for why is because we just do what we want to. And I'm not saying we're the most groundbreaking band in the world by any stretch of the imagination. But if we want, if we want to do a heavy metal track, we'll do it. If we want to do a reggae track, we'll do it. You know, we're not like sort of the Smiths, where you go, oh, and here's three minutes of our sound. Oh, here's another three minutes of our sound. Here's another three minutes of our sound. We're not that kind of band, and and consequently, you can't go, oh, I, I can. You know, I have favourite songs or whatever, but um, and there are other people have their favourite songs which are not the same as mine. But none of them, I don't. Yeah, there's no representative. You know, we're just not that kind of band. I mean, I just picked on the Smiths, but I could have picked on any number of bands really, where you just. It's like, oh, it's instantly them because they because they do the same thing over and over again. <laughs> you mentioned some favourites there. What what are your favourite tracks on the album? Well, I haven't heard it for a long time, so I'd have to go and it's the other side of the room, so for me to go and pick it up and find. Um, but I like there's a song called "The End Began Somewhere" that ends that closes side one on the vinyl, but. Um, that I would probably, well, that must be one of my favourites because that's the one that I thought of off the top of my head. But, um, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is I like all, there's 12 songs on it because it's an album. An album should have 12 songs on it, by the way. I like I like all of them. Yeah, The End Began Somewhere is probably my favourite. The, the final track, which isn't called For Against Fate, it was originally, but I, I forget what it's called now. But um, the one with um, where we've got Mark Bedford from Madness and Clara Kababian, our American violin genius. I think the last track is called The Desperate Quartet. Yes, that's it. That's it. That's the song I like very much. I really liked the, the first track on the album, Thicko Rides Again. And I thought it was my decision to have that as the first track on the album because I thought it was kind of the hit on the album. But that's one track that didn't get any radio play at all and i haven't and i haven't seen anybody say that it's their favorite track so um you know whereas other people the um everything everywhere all of the time was very popular with people whereas i think that's a bit of a throwaway song really so um you never can tell but they're all good it's a, it's a you know the whole album as a as a as a piece is is something that I'm proud of. And it re- realistically, it's probably the first album that I've made in any incarnation where I have, um, once it's completed and you've listened to it a few times, I've still liked all of the songs. There's normally one or two on an album where you think, oh, that's not really that good. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's just true. You, you know, like... you. Normally you record you record everything and it's all good, and then and then when it's finished and you've heard it, you, there's normally one or two where you think, ah, you know, 
And there isn't any on this result. Um, I was just going to ask whether you're working on anything else, whether you've used this lockdown to work on any more new material for another album, your 11th. Well, we actually, over, I don't know how all this internet kind of stuff works, but by, um, because our bass player is a, a German man who lives in Germany, we've had to do it at distance, but we recorded a complete song that we were going to release in the summer as a sort of, free download to sort of cheer people up a bit and keep keep the band afloat. But that didn't happen for a variety of reasons, so that's a, a kind of dead song that's floating around. The band have been putting various ideas. We've got a kind of drop box where people can put in, you know, here's a riff or here's a melody or whatever, but they haven't really materialised into finished songs yet. I, I suppose... There are two things that have been kind of standing in the way of this 11th album. And one is the, um, uh, and they shouldn't stand in the way of it, I admit that, but they have. Um, and one is that Four Against Fate came out to no kind of fanfare, you know, and we haven't toured that. The majority of the songs on that album we've never played live. So let's keep our fingers crossed and imagine we do get to do our tour in April. That will be the Four Against Fate tour, where the people who bought the album and our fans in general will get to hear that album live for the first time. So we didn't want to be kind of um, playing a bunch of new material, you know, promoting kind of our next album when we haven't even played this album live yet. And the other thing is, I was due to be making an album with a friend of mine, a woman called Janet Beveridge Bean, who's in a band called Freakwater, and we agreed last September that we would we wanted to make an album together, and that was due to be being recorded in Valencia next month, which of course it's not now. But um, in terms of lyrics and stuff, I was working on material for that record, which was the more immediate concern than the than the next Nightingale's record. So a mixture of me working on the Janet record plus the unfinished business with Four Against Fate means we haven't, and plus the fact that we haven't been able to um, go to our lockup. And, you know, I haven't rehearsed with Fliss and Jim since before March. And that's where we do the majority of our, uh, our songwriting. Yeah, you know, the fact that we haven't been able to rehearse together the fact that I was working on the album I'm making with Janet Bean and the fact that Four Against Fate still... Uh, people might not think of it as a new album, but it's a, it's an album that hasn't had its tour yet. It hasn't had its Mark Riley session yet. So we're a bit behind schedule. We're not, we're not as... Um, normally we're, we, re- we finish recording one album and we start work on the next one straight away. But that hasn't been the case. Um, and we... And, I haven't got any recording equipment at home. I'm not computer savvy. So unlike maybe a lot of bands that maybe have little home studios and, um, you know, I would imagine younger bands, but that's me being a bit presumptive. But, you know, certain people are in a situation where they can kind of continue. Um, you know, I know there are, I've been busy bands during this time, so I, I can't blame the, uh, the COVID thing, you know, or use that as an excuse. 
But anyway, I'm, I, as is my want, I'm, I'm just rambling on a bit, but you get the picture from what I've said. One last question I wanted to ask you. Is it true that you and Vic Goddard tried to set fire to the jam on the White Riot Tour? It is true, yes. Well, it wasn't trying to set... It wasn't, it wasn't um, trying to set fire to the jam as such. It's just that they um, they only did one gig. They were like the special guests at the London gig, uh, which was at the Rainbow Theatre, a big old, you know, seated venue. It was the first big punk seated gig kind of thing. And, and, and it was when they wore their suits, not long after Paul Weller had come out with their base support, Margaret Thatcher in a, some interview but the thing is they had a massive as their backdrop it was a massive union jack and me and Vic were in the uh, in the kind of lighting rig above the stage and we were just dropping down matches trying to set fire to the, their flag really it wasn't you know it wouldn't have burnt the band for better or worse <laughs> <laughs> This has been a Birmingham Comedy Festival production and we've been chatting to the Nightingale singer, Robert Lloyd. The band's latest album, Four Against Fate, is available now from Tiny Global Productions and they'll be back touring in the spring of 2021. For more information, including details of King Rocker screenings, see thenightingales.org.uk. And to find out what Birmingham Comedy Festival is up to, check out the festival online. Links are in our profile. Thanks for listening.